This podcast contains swear words. Hey, hey, welcome. This is Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. I'm your host, Tara Cheyenne Friedenberg. In this podcast, if you have not listened before, our focus is around interviewing art makers, female identifying and non-binary primarily, art makers from the west coast of Turtle Island and across so-called Canada, sharing their stories, their ideas, their inspiration with you. If there is somebody that you know, or maybe you're that person who you'd like to hear interviewed, please reach out. We love suggestions. And there's probably, there are people I don't know. I know it's surprising, but there are. We are coming from the west coast of Turtle Island on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. We are very grateful to be here. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. All right. Today's interview is with Emelina Fredrickson. Emelina is a dance maker. Emelina is an educator. Emelina is an inspiring human being. And this is kind of an interesting interview because often... With podcasts, with media, we interview folks before their shows. I am interviewing Emelina two days after closing a show that Terrashine Performance helped produce at our space in East so-called Vancouver, Progress Lab. It was a great success. It was a super interesting piece. I'm so grateful that we could do it and that all the folks could come and see it. So it's interesting to talk about what happens to us when it's all over. All right, I said it before, I'll say it again. Please like, love, rate, review this podcast. It does make a difference. It makes it easier for folks to find the podcast. It just shows up sooner when you Google or whatever you're you're doing on the computer. I don't need to know what you're doing on the computer. Um, or tell a friend. That works really great, too. If you can, donations are much appreciated. Small, the big. TaraCheyenne.com, upper right-hand corner. Click that donate button, or we will link the donation link in the show notes. Welcome to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. Thank you so much for being here. It's very exciting to sit down and talk to you like this in this voice that I'm using, this dorky voice. Um, this is interesting, listeners, because Emelina has just completed a run of her show, Ecdysis, here at Progress Lab, which is where Terrashine Performance is resident. And we kind of hosted you, which was very exciting for us because we hadn't hosted another artist like this before. I thought it would be really interesting to talk to you like right after to reflect because often we do interviews before we do a show and we're just like flipping it. And so it is Tuesday. You close the show on Saturday. How do you feel? Yeah, I feel, I think on Sunday it hit me kind of an overwhelm of love and support that I felt that made this show even possible and then there was like I was proud of everyone I was proud of myself I was happy and then I was also feeling really sad and a little bit shy and a bit like what have I put out into the world 
yeah, the first sensation after was so much emotion and so much feelings. And it reminded me too of, I think, the time that we're in now that this show, the solo, the origin of it was supposed to premiere in November 2020 in a theater in Sweden. And there's been a lot of stuff that's happened in two years. And I think when we go to perform now, we also perform with all of that. It wasn't what it was before, you know, and it wasn't, it is both like kind of more beautiful and more painful in a way for me, all of it that we're carrying with us and that work that has been brewing and attempting to be like birthed and then like retracted and then again and then, It's just that wave of the attempts, I guess, that we made during the pandemic of trying to do what we have done for most of our lives and what kind of makes sense to us in the world. And then being told time and time again that it was too dangerous to do that thing. And it's not the first performance I'm doing since the pandemic hit, but... I'm still not fully back into the swing of that performance as a norm that is happening in my life on a regular basis. So I think that weight of it too, the nature of the work itself and where it comes from, but then also that two-year kind of trying to exist and then being shut down and then trying again, like it was a lot of energy behind it coming in to do it. So I think part of the emotion was just like, wow, we did it. Like we actually finally did it. And it's a very collaborative project that takes a lot of people. And so the beauty and I felt community was very strong. So, yeah, so many feelings. And now it's three days later. And I read something this morning in a book about how creativity is a conversation. It is always a conversation. And that this work in particular was a conversation with myself in one way where it came from. I was processing and figuring some things out in myself. And then once I put it out into the world the way I did on the weekend, it's in conversation with everybody who came, with other artworks that exist, with our like time and place, you know, the work being kind of sci-fi as well, maybe questions that idea of what is the present, what is the future, So today I've been thinking a lot about art making as a a way of engaging or conversing with both oneself. And then once we share it with others, it changes into another conversation. That's beautiful. I think when you do solo work, and we've talked about this before, Ecdysis, the show that Emelina just did, solo in that you were the only one quote unquote performing. But I wouldn't even say that because the lights are happening the sound is happening, all being triggered live and, you know, kind of dispelling this idea that a solo is Mm -hmm. just one person. We make it in the ensemble. And I think this piece so much so even further with the audience. And you put out a lot of images and a lot of people put out images on online. I'd love to talk to you about the fact that you were like, take pictures, do video. But when you post it, just tag us. I was like, wow, cool. That's cool. But also like, would I do that? How would I feel about that? But you really created another platform for conversation around it. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I feel like it's maybe not my like original idea. I feel a few performances I've seen recently have done that. And I think it in this particular work, it serves in multiple ways. 
And one of them with the work being around this cyborg identity and our relationship to technology and what is being human and what is being a machine. I was curious for the audience if anyone had, I don't know if they did, but that feeling of like, we are already intertwined with technology through our phones, right? The idea of the extension into being a cyborg maybe isn't so far because I don't know for myself, I'm like, that phone is next to me 24 seven. It's right next to me when I sleep. It's, you know, it's often in my pocket. And the few times that I go camping or go off grid and I know that the phone doesn't do anything. I have like body twitches to reach for it. It's like, it's a full on addiction symbiosis. I don't know. So in one way I felt as a way to experience this work that is questioning that where's the transition between machine or human or animal. What is a cyborg? Are we cyborgs sooner or later? I think we're mm. all becoming cyborgs mm-hmm. is one of the taglines in the music. I was curious for the audience to maybe be also realizing that they are maybe watching through the lens of a sort of a smartphone or a camera. So that was maybe my sort of aesthetic flirting with the sensory-based experience of an audience. The other thing is simply it's hard work to do all the promotion yourself or even in this case with, you know, I had you and I had Newerks that was helping me out. But I think it functioned even better when this is the kind of the social media world we live in, right? We want as many people as possible to share or to be informed about what's going on on those platforms, if that's how we use them. And it was a way to document and a way to kind of let the world know that, hey, this happened. And that was just maybe me being cheeky instead of hiring a photographer to do that job. And that also puts into question of the question of labor, if the cyborgs are machines working for us and you know, are we working for Instagram and for Facebook? <laughs> oh, yes. Content? Oh, yes. So I feel that all those complexities kind of land in that. And maybe the third reason, which is maybe the very human reason in me, feeling a bit insecure about the work I was putting out and thinking, oh, I wonder if people will be bored. And maybe if I let them engage with like taking photos and videos they will have another form of activity than just watching. Uh And I say that very openly in the way that, you know, a lot of people was telling me that it was a very rich world and so much to engage with. But as always, I don't know, putting something out there that, yeah, I was unsure of how it was going to be received. And so that felt like a little safety blanket to be like, you know, you can also take pictures and videos because then people are creative in their own way too while they're there. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? You know, the audience, like a child, like, oh, you can play with your phone. Yeah. It's okay, sweetie, you can play with your phone. As a way of kind of getting through something that is potentially difficult or you're questioning Mm -hmm. it, which I would argue, I don't know about you, I don't think I've ever gone out on stage feeling like, this is great. (laughs) Everybody's going to love this. I've never felt that. I've always felt like, oh, no, what have I done? What is this? But I think there's a lot of power in just being transparent, too. Yeah. And I also actually thought of the strongest feeling that was like right after the show, as I was sort of switching my persona from the cyborg alter ego into just my plain self, felt so shy. And it might seem absurd to someone who's not a performer after what I just did to be like, you did all that and now you're shy. 
But I think the shyness comes from the feeling of having been vulnerable. And I always have this feeling, and I think that's when I'm doing it right, too, when I have the feeling like I've, like, read my diary on stage or something. And I think maybe that's a a value that I have in my performance making, that I want to make work that challenges me slightly in some way or transforms me slightly in some way. Because if I did the thing that I was so sure of and that I knew exactly what it was and how to do it, then there wouldn't be much need for me to do it, I think. Because then that would just be a reproduction of something that felt comfortable and familiar. So in a way, when I found myself being kind of terrified to go out and talk to people after the show... I was like, oh, yeah, this is because I actually did something that I care about. And the fear lies in that new conversation that is following after. Here I put it out there. And there is a almost like a childlike sense, too, in the way I just like whoop, spit it out. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, yes, now it's the time to see what that did and how that was received and what did people experience. And so in a way, yeah, thinking about that idea of that art is a conversation too. I think that is the conversation that I want to have. I don't want to have the conversation where I have all the answers. I don't want to have the conversation where I know exactly how the audience is going to react. I want to have the conversation where I am challenged and maybe where the audience is challenged. And I want to have the conversation where we maybe feel more vulnerable and maybe more open. And there is something about questioning too, for me of questioning maybe my my lived experience and also this like, what is this world that mm-hmm. we live in? I think that's one of the reasons why I make art and, and to ask those questions genuinely and then really say something about it and then begin that conversation that is scary. It's scary, but I... But I want to do that, right? It's an interesting relationship with oneself. (laughs) Absolutely, right? And I think, too, it's very generous to be vulnerable and to ask questions and simply be unsure, you know? I think that there's a real power in art making, especially performing, that maybe people who aren't in what we do maybe don't understand. You know, there's this, oh, well, you're a performer. You're a professional. You're a professional. You've been you performing love it. for like 20, 30 years. Come like, on. What's the yeah. big deal? Come to the cocktail party. What? No, no, God. Oh, God. I have terrible social anxiety. Yeah. Like, no, can I just go sit at home and watch TV? But I also wanted to ask, did anybody say anything that surprised you? Or tell me about so that. So many people. And this is also where I think... For me, maybe that's a measure of success, too, in terms of the project, where the reflections that I got from people were so wildly different. And I realized that the work in its kind of abstraction or in its world building allowed people to reflect on things that they are maybe busy processing at the moment. And for me, that was like, wow, that is also something I really treasure in especially performance art that it's not about, I don't want to be didactic and say, I'm going to start and tell you a story and this is how it is and this is how it was and this is how it ended. For me, it's not the kind of performance that I make, but it was beautiful to see the different interpretations. So I had a couple of people tell me they interpreted the end as me having a look at humanity and then feeling kind of disgusted or like, I don't want to be part of this. And then just walking off. That was one interpretation of the end. Someone else said to me that they thought it was about identity and how we struggle to be ourselves. So we look at everybody else to try to figure out who we are. And they like 
the way that I kind of copied like a human stance. They were like, yeah, I thought that was you trying to like see, could you be like them? But you were like, not sure. And so then when you were walking off, it was about you finding your own identity. And I was like, wow, amazing. And then I had someone else say that they found the end so incredibly hopeful that it was like, finally, I, I was sort of softening into the unknown and what was going to happen. And it was full of hope for them. Wow. And so I think that for me was incredible because I have a maybe my own, own narrative. And that someone else was like, yeah, I wonder what happened next. Maybe you like took off and like some sort of East Van hippie commune took you in. And you're learning to <laughs> you know, people's, people's imagine. I felt the end really was available for people to fill in the blank, which really excited me afterwards because it gave me also this idea of like, wow, yeah, where could it go next? You know, Mm. it's like it could open up in many ways. And so, yeah, I think that was very beautiful. And it kind of also helped me maybe with some of that anxiety when I felt very vulnerable. So I was like, the audience is always going to bring their current selves to the work and they are always going to relate yeah, I had, it was so beautiful. I had a couple of my students who came and they said, oh, and then at the end, and when you touched the spine, I just started crying and I didn't know why. And just that the work triggers something in people. And whether that's, you know, someone's like, oh, that for me was the moment of hope. And for someone else, it's the moment of like, I'm done. I'm getting out of here. And, and that beautiful thing that it can hold many interpretations. Yeah, it was exciting. It's a power of performance, too. It's a power of art, I think. You know, I wish we were taught that whatever you see is the right thing to see. You know, because I talk to so many people, like, I don't really understand. And they talk in that exact voice that I just did. Um, Instead of valuing, this is what I saw. This is the experience that I had in this moment. Yeah. And I think coming out of the pandemic, too, and the, the... The power of that that I felt on the weekend as well is every night the audience was quite different and the energy was different. And that creates a different sensation for me of performing the work and it creates a different energy for, you know, the audience as a collective to be witnessing together as well. And so, yeah, that video maybe doesn't have the same effect. And if we think about how much video dance I engaged with both doing and witnessing over the last two years, I think it's coming back to this very rich experience of performing, but also the collective community of witnessing together. There's no comparison. We can't break the fourth wall with video. Trust me, I've tried. Um, But also you mentioned touching the spine. I'll link to some images of the piece, but in the piece, Emelina wears this incredible head, spine, illuminated sculpture, exoskeleton. Can you talk about how that came to be and your experience dancing with that? Yeah, I think this is also the big question of, I've been thinking about that idea of, yeah, like, why do I make work? And sometimes when I make work, I feel like it's something outside of myself that I want to dive into and dig into. And that's probably most, I don't know, is that most of that? I don't know. But I felt with this work, what was kind of wild is that there was something that was coming from inside of me that I wasn't quite sure of what it was, but it was kind of, it kind of pushed its way out. And this idea of the spine definitely came from there too. So 
Uh, I've collaborated with Dr. Bob Pritchard out at UBC for many years, and he has a research team where they explore art and technology in different ways. So I've worked on a couple of projects with him with these smart textiles that when you touch them, they can trigger computer samples like sound or light or things like this. We also worked with a lot of um, motion tracking and uh, through different types of technologies, we've just built a collaborative relationship. And as the pandemic hit, we tried to continue some conversations of how to work together. And up until that point, I guess it had been sort of more centered maybe around a group or being together in a studio in a space and not being able to do that. Bob and I met for coffee one day and he said, oh, we need to like build you a costume. We need to make you a costume and maybe something with light, interactive light. And I said, oh, I think that would be fantastic. I said, could you could you make me a spine, a spine that lights Mm. up? And I don't know where that idea came from. So he 3D printed a very different type of spine with like loose vertebrae that we were talking about. Maybe we could put some of this light technology into that. And I was like, I don't know, it's too small. It's like, feels too small. Like, I want a really big spine. And I have no idea where that came from. And then Leah Hamer, the costume designer, came in to the conversation and we were throwing ideas back and forth. And the first iteration of the spine was made, which looked a little bit different and it had no headpiece at first and took us a while to figure out how the spine connected to the head. And then as the costume was kind of evolving and in the beginning, the way that we attached the box called a taste box, (laughs) which is where the programming and the communication with the wireless system is, Originally, that was not on the spine itself, but I had a choker around my throat that it was attached to. And so as the rest of the costume built, I realized, wow, this is quite a dominatrix costume, which is maybe not the vibe that I give off usually in my uh, daily life. And so I was (laughs) like, wow, what is this? I want to have this giant spine and putting on the PVC harness. I felt like I was definitely not soft and cuddly. I was ready to fight for something. And so I started doing some research into first the history of cyborgs and AI, which is often portrayed as this very submissive female. And I was like, well, it's clear that I'm not the like submissive female here and definitely not the kind of effect that we have built. And then I started thinking, what is this spine? Like, what would be a biological advantage of having a giant spine that lights up? Like, is there Mm, any, you know? And the only thing I was thinking about how we say in language or in words when we talk about someone being spineless, they're lacking courage or like not having a backbone. And so I was like, wow, so what is it that I feel like I need the courage to dig into? And so that's kind of where it started. And then the movement choreography sort of came out of that and out of this idea of what would it be to regain the power and control over my body as someone who maybe has been forced into being a submissive female for most of my life? What would it be to give myself the permission to be angry and to go through what I call the like old programming or to let myself be an animal about things that affected me deeply? What could that journey be if, say, this submissive female cyborg 
is deciding to go against the programming, which kind of reminds me of your work too, of the assignment. As I right. thought about yeah. that, when you're like, oh, what is this assignment that I've been given and like how it's lived in my life in many different ways to like not having the permission to be angry also about certain things that is, was just supposed to be quiet, be quiet and quiet down and oh, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just your lot as a woman to take certain things and yeah so it was quite emotional and uh, just that feeling of like something coming out of my body which is not necessarily I think how I make work usually that feeling of like I just felt like there was something taking over my body and I was like well it's got to be made and the same with all the collaborators I felt they joined into the project in a way that I'm not used to either it felt like it had a bit of a magnet sensation Mm. the whole project yeah And like the birth of this cyborg was the result of many people wanting to birth her out. And we've had no funding for this project so far. So it's also that like no Canada Council funding or BCAC funding. It's been mostly people joining in because they think it's an interesting project, I guess. And so that also feels a bit different. The way to how it's called the collaborators in. Yeah, So interesting. I mean, obviously there is a magnetism Mm -hmm. and I think just your imperative to like, I need to make this. I certainly feel like when I make work, it's almost always like, I have to do this. I'd love to have a more logical career choice. And so would my parents. I think they're still holding out hope. Um, (laughs) But I wonder if that imperative that you have is actually the magnet. You know what I mean? Like, the story of how we came on board TCP just that you put out on, on Instagram. I know it's unreal. And I don't usually look at Instagram. But it's also unreal to me that it was just me being like, hey. And then. Yeah. So anyway, for those of you who don't know, Emelina had a beautiful photograph of the cyborg, the lit up spine. And I think I'd seen a little bit online and you said, oh, I, I wish I had a home for this show. And I was working in where we're actually doing this interview right now in the garage studio at Progress Lab. It literally is a garage, but we put in better heating and the old dance floor from the fire hall from the studio upstairs. I've made so many pieces on this dance floor. When they said they were going to get rid of it, I was like, no, you're not. Wow. Can you bring it over? And they were like, yeah, we'll bring it over. We're going to take it to the dump, but we'll bring it here. So there was something about this space, about available light theory, like use what you have. Mm -hmm. And I just thought this might be a really good spot for the cyborg. Anyway, there's something powerful about that. And I think for, you know, the dance artists and theater artists out there who might think, oh God, how am I going to do this? I think there is power in just saying out loud. What you want. Yeah, what you need. Sorry to cut you off there. But like when you talk also about like, there's been something with this project that the things that have been drawn to it has been the right things. So Philip, who composed the music... He kind of came on board through a friend of mine who I originally asked, who then was like, you know what, I think you need to work with Philip. And turns out that he was making these dystopian sort of sci-fi soundscape. And I had never heard his music before and was just like, yes, this is it. And it just kind of came to me. And then when you said, want to make a show in a garage at Progress Lab? And I'm like... Yes, because I think this, uh, to be honest too, this, the iteration that we just did, 
I feel like it was maybe more the version that it needed to be than a black box theater show, even just in the name. Progress Lab. Of course, it's a cyborg factory. <laughs> Why wouldn't yes. it be? You yes. know, Progress Lab. And then the way the courtyard is with the white wall, which is perfect for projecting on. There was just so many things that fell into place. And I think it goes to say, I think in anything in life, when we feel there's some things that we feel like we're just banging our heads against the wall and we're pushing for things to happen. And then there's other things that just seems to unfold and they go anyway. And so it's in that way, too, I felt like this not only did this work need to come out of me, but I also felt like everybody who was drawn to it needed for it to happen. And it wouldn't have happened without you. It wouldn't have happened with the all the people that brought it into life. And so to lean into to that is, yeah, it feels it's actually quite easy once you get moving because it makes mm-hmm. sense. And also, you know, on a sort of funny note, I guess, it's like when you work with a dystopian world-building reality, it's great because it doesn't matter if things break or if things get <laughs> shitty because it's just part of it. And it so makes it better. That was hilarious when I felt like everything that we were like, oh, what if it rains? We have to cover everything in plastic. Oh, fantastic. Kind of makes it even better. <laughs> yeah, it just felt like everything kind of just added to that idea, like, you know, even my shoes sort of breaking. Oh, well, no, it's better if she looks a bit worn down. It's like more of a feeling. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think there's there's definitely something to that when something needs to be put out there and when people feel that joining in adds to it or, like, that you have something where that can live. So I think the garage space at Progress Lab was the ultimate venue for <laughs> for this work. And I kind of joked a bit about it. How are we going to, if we want to tour it like this, we would have to say, you know, what is your most sort of dark DIY venue? And the way that we create the dystopian landscape is we go to an industrial area in each town and we pick up what we can find. And, you know, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could be an interesting piece to tour for sure. It could be a whole, like, you know, community engagement. Take us to the darkest part of your town. Yes. You know, don't go alone. But it does open up, right? Like, it opens things up when we let go of this idea that everything has to be a certain way. And I can only do it with this much money. I can only do it in this kind of space. I can only do it with these kind of people. And, well, of course, that sometimes that is the case. And also the empowerment, I think, through your support and new works kind of being a bit like, we got your back. We think this is a great idea. We've got some money for you. Just having that support of that residency, it made me believe in the work more. And so even though we made it happen without the sort of the grant funding, it made me also realize, and Amber and I spoke about that after the show, I felt like it was almost like taking back some power into us artists in our community instead of it being always in the hands of the funding bodies, which... You know, we are so grateful for the support that we get through through the grants. But I think sometimes I feel like it dictates our lives so much when projects live or die based on what grants, who gets awarded the grants and yeah. who doesn't. And so it felt really empowering, too, to feel like as a community, and I'm not saying this, we still need the grants, but as a community, we could also, there was resources amongst us to make something happen 
and to feel empowered to make something and not just sit and wait for my turn or something like that. Yeah. It felt really empowering and really important. And the sense of community was very, very strong in the work. And yeah, that's, it's, feel very grateful for that. I mean, it was amazing. It was an amazing show. And I think it's a part of decolonizing to not always rely on the gatekeepers or the funders. I mean, and those are, when I say that, I don't mean they're not individuals. Oh. These are systems. Yes. And the people within those systems are struggling against those systems too and trying to dismantle them. Um but if we realize the resources that we have, um, I remember somebody way back asking me, well, what are your resources? What do you have to make this work? Mm-hmm. And they said, it's not just money, but like, who's around? Like, who can you bring into yeah. the studio or who can, you know, make your costumes? My mummy. And, you know, so, yeah. so that those are, those are real and those yeah. are, those are tangible. But yes, we do have to eat, but it does, it takes a village. And also... For me, the excitement as a maker, too, to work in that intersection of disciplines and the collaboration, it is very rich for me to, you know, to have that. I thought about that with this show, too. I was like, wow, I really did not make it easy for myself. (laughs) I decided to perform outside in the dark, on wet ground, with like a harness spine connected to my body that lights up and then have obstacles in the way and a moving audience and... As a performance experience, it was maybe less about doing the things that I had practiced, but more taking what I had rehearsed or made or practiced into a very organic living space and watching how the audience interacted with me. Most of the piece, I only see feet because I don't really look beyond knees. (laughs) It's very low to the ground. And just observing people's movement of their feet Mm. was very interesting. And then I realized, oh, yeah, the first show, people didn't really move. I was stroking up against people's legs. And I was like, wow, so bold, so brave. They're just there with me. And someone was following me for most of the duration. And the second night, the audience was a little bit more hanging back at the edges. I had a little bit more space to move. And for the third show, I saw so many feet scurrying, like hurrying, like in front of me because they were like, oh, they didn't know which way I was going. And I could feel the sort of anxiousness or the tension between like, oh, she's going to come this way or is she going to go that way? And really fast sort of hurrying feet that was trying to move out of the way. And I thought, wow, this is as a performance experience. Yeah, I like that it wasn't predictable and that it's in this intersection of what is this? Who's the performer? I mean, obviously I was the performer, but people are watching other people watch me and being in my way and getting out of my way. And then their own physical embodiment to the objects in space because they may be, oh, I'm going to go up here close to this sculpture because here it feels a little bit safer or when they felt exposed being in a wide open space. And that for me is also exciting thinking about work like this that is, you know, maybe outside of the norm of a regular theater setting. But it becomes so exciting. And I think that, you know, performance is always, as you say, in conversation. Mm -hmm. And this is just very much expose the conversation. And it was so exciting to watch people and watch the people who didn't move. Mm -hmm. It was like, how long are they going to stand there? Yeah. Well, Emmalina is flinging her arms <laughs> before they get flumped in the face. Is like, wow, you can't fabricate those kind no. of moments. They're so exciting and it's so interesting. And like you say, everybody becomes the performer. 
everybody's part of the show. So what are you going to do next? Oh, it might be premature. No, um, but I bet you you got an idea. Oh yeah, I think for this particular work, I'm going to let the cyber rest a little bit. She's been working hard. Hmm. She's been working very hard. So she has to rest a little bit. We had some costume malfunction. We need to lab out a little bit. The spine got a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier, and it just mm. caused a little bit of some some issues, but still worked within the piece. It still worked. I think we're going to lab out some of those things of how is that actually working? And then... What does lab out mean? Lab out for me... I like this. I like it. Tell me. I guess it's like, I think about this too. I like to work with material a lot. Mm -hmm. So maybe that is the like, to lab a material. How does this function? How does it move? And how much pressure can it sustain? And uh, Mm. because I think one of the things that happened with the costume is somehow in the types of movement I was doing or the weight of the spine, there was some tension issues in the actual structure of the spine. I sound like a scientist. This is great. Well, you are a Um, scientist. So I think to take some time to like lab out, lab out is this weird English. I don't know, like to see what is the thing doing now? Because this is also fascinating with the project that's been going for two years. And then we're like, oh, it has a bit of a life of its own. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also in a process to turn it into an art film, make the work for camera. And we're looking a little bit more at maybe the relationship between nature and technology. And so that is the next step of the cyborg. Cool. So this was kind of the first step of taking her out of a studio, a theater or a building. And so we want to take her out, you know, we want to take her to the beach and we want to take her to the forest and we want to... Uh, see how do we experience her in those environments that we perceive as maybe separate from technology but they maybe are not you know they are maybe also overall technology is coming from nature too so it's maybe not a a dichotomy or a binary in terms of yeah yeah you know it's nature or technology like so Mm -hmm. that is kind of the next step of that but I was also Yeah, I go into other projects, but, you know, this is very much in me now. So it's that conversation. I think I'm thinking a lot about how, why do I make work Mm -hmm. and how do I make it? And this project, I think, stirred a different process for me. And so going into another project that was supposed to premiere in 2020, which is with Arash Kapoor, that we now have renamed to You Touch Me instead of Untitled Distance. It has a new name. We're turning our duet into a group piece. And I think it's just as we go from one project to another, thinking about this different identity of myself as a cyborg and going into a process that is also about vulnerability and identity. Of course, she she comes with me into that in some way, even though I won't be wearing the spine. (laughs) Do you feel like the spine now integrated in you somehow, even though you take it off, right? Of course. I feel like it's a version of me and it's a performance identity or an extension of me that needed to exist. And knowing that I have her feels kind of good, you know? She's, She's kind of a fighter and a warrior and she's very strong and she's survived a lot of things. And in a way, almost by having her, I can soften a little bit. Oh, wow. And so it is, I mean, maybe I should talk to people who do have very, I mean, you do this work all the time where you have clear performance identities. Yeah. And how you maybe process things through embodying different, I feel like this is 
exactly the person I should talk to about this. Because <laughs> I feel many people do. Many people have, you know, we process different parts of ourselves through maybe having these different performance personas. Oh, definitely. I know in academic research, the phrase is, research is me-search. I tell people that every character that I am on stage is just a part of me. But then taking them out into the world, I learn more about myself. And I think you're already saying that, like about the cyborg has gifted you a transformation. Yeah, absolutely. And also even my relationship to technology too, weirdly. Mm -hmm. Is changing too, in the sense of maybe I was more of that camp before that it's like, you know, it's like us against technology or, oh. you know, nature against technology. And it's just the whole project, I think, has made me think more about what is that integration. And I had some people tell me after the show, I was like, I don't want to become a cyborg. I don't want to. And I was like, well, clearly there was something in me that did. And what is that? And just also one thing I realized I like a lot through both this project and another project, unfortunately, was kind of disappeared in the COVID mess. But I had another piece called Oh Well, which was a duet with Lexi and Francesca, which was looking at sort of two clones or AIs uh, trying to understand what love is. Yes, yes. And one thing that I've learned about this interest that I have in sci-fi or in this notion of AI and cyborgs and this aesthetic is I'm also a little bit trapped in like a retro futurism where this work is placed is not necessarily in like future now, now to future, but it's more about how we thought about the future in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something that I'm curious about in terms of our collective cultural understanding of our world through this lens of how we thought the future would be in the past and the aesthetics that we portrayed. There was a really great exhibition at the VAG on cyborgs and AI and the history. And I realized I'm definitely still in the space where like in the 60s and 70s, like I wasn't even born at that time, but the way they were thinking about cyborgs and AI then is still very fascinating to me because the modern day, if we think about AI, like all the like face recognition stuff, it's kind of scary to me because it's getting so good, but it's also so good in thinking and generating things by itself. The intelligence is so good, but it's a very biased intelligence full of misogyny and racism. and Surveillance stuff. capitalism. Surveillance capitalism, exactly. Yeah. So it's like the, the actual conversation now that maybe we should be having about where is AI going is not necessarily the one. I'm still kind of in this question of what is it that makes someone human, mm-hmm. like the Turing test and like how can we tell a cyborg from a human or how can we tell AI from a human? So maybe it does come back to that me search to me, you know, like what what does it mean for me to be human and Am I, you know, what part of me is still an animal and what part of me is becoming more machine-like through the interfaces that I'm engaging with on a daily basis? They're really important questions. Yeah. Yeah. I um, laugh at those folks out there who, you know, the government surveilling and, you know, don't get the vaccine because they're implanting. It's like, you're carrying around a cell phone. You're on Facebook and Instagram. They already know everything, my friend. Mm -hmm. You're already a cyborg. Yeah. We're already there. Now, how are we going to question our relationship, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I want to respect your time. Yeah. I have one last question. My question is, is there something, a practice, a ritual, an exercise that you do to keep yourself creative and in some sort of, you know, healthy or inspired place, (laughs) whatever that means, whatever that means, anything that you do, you know, like making fresh pasta or something Uh, like that. This kind of makes me think, even though I said, you know, this process was very different, I feel like maybe I have a similar relationship to my career choice as you that sometimes it feels like a curse and sometimes a blessing Mm. (laughs) because I don't really feel like it is a choice. I tried quitting dance actually many times and like just doing it like I come from a sort of a working class background. I like worked in a warehouse 6.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. and it was very clear what the job task was. It was physical and which was good. I got some outlet for that and I was like seeing could I do this you know could I structure my life this way and uh, I very quickly found myself playing games in the warehouse and like getting into trouble doing things I shouldn't do and so I think that I don't lack the urge to be creative but I think the rituals I do is ways to frame and harness that creativity um what are the things that I I I love lying on the floor and just letting myself be I mean this is gonna sound funny I don't engage with it so much anymore but I used to have my best creative ideas right before I was falling asleep mm-hmm. and so I used to try to recreate moments where I would be in kind of that state of almost falling asleep and so I'm not a snoozer I don't like to snooze but I tried to make it into a practice or a ritual of snoozing to try to like get myself in that in-between state Ooh. where I wasn't asleep or awake yeah some people is like, well, you're just snoozing. But for me, it was like not comfortable. It was just more to get into that space. And I also get it actually after sort of physical practice and then resting when my body's kind of exhausted or savasana and yoga. And so I think getting myself into the state where I'm, I guess it's like daydreaming too. Mm-hmm. When I think about it, coming back to technology, I think the way that I reach for my phone to fill those gaps when space is a little bit more diluted or foggy, I think is a hindrance probably to my creative ideas. So that is a bit of a ritual or like, I think I mostly find it these days by going into a space and lying on the floor and maybe putting on some sort of abstract ephemeral electronic music. And in those spaces, I find that a lot of things emerge for me and then I have a whole different set I think of how to like continue generating and digging into that but things seem to come like one thing seems to come after the other and it's just catching them it's almost it is almost feeling like there are ideas that are always passing by and it's whether I'm open and available to catch them as they're fleeting past and then there's the discipline and the rigor of working that idea into something called performance you know which I think I use a lot of tools from other people that I've trained with and people I admire who taught me a lot about how to work ideas. But the original ideas, yeah, I feel like they're floating around there like oh, yeah. all the time. And I do not know what it's like to be someone who doesn't have the need <laughs> to make art. I think everybody has the need to make art, but I think people are content with different types of art making. And yeah, for some people it's... You know, I'm not very good at crafts. Like, uh, I have friends who are very good at pottery, for example. Amazing. But I somehow have an urge to dig into myself and who am I and who are you and what happens if we move our bodies a certain way. And it's like, 
yeah, it's a blessing and a curse, I feel. Oh, definitely. It's made, I know. It's made life rich, but it's also made it so complicated. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that Mm. I should have asked you? Oh, what an interesting question. It's not a question, but something that's been interesting for me with this project, too, is thinking about world building and how this project allowed me to do, like, even in terms of costume, me and Aaliyah Hamer, the costume designer, we, like, talked about, like, maybe we need to make a whole wardrobe for her, you know? It's, like, almost given me permission to, sometimes I feel contemporary dance exists in this kind of minimalism mm-hmm. because we can't afford so much. Because we have to. <laughs> we have to. <laughs> And somehow with this project, with so many people coming on board and how I feel like this is going to live on, it feels very open-ended. This idea that it could be like a part two or like, you know, it doesn't have to be like a film sequel, but because it is this persona that could appear in so many other things too. It's been exciting for me to think about the idea of world building. You know, it's a different way for me, I think, to keep generating. You know, it started from a conversation, we should make you a costume. And then here we are. And it's, you know, it exists as a stage piece. We have done this immersive outdoor performance. We're going to make an art film. And, you know, what else could she do? We were joking at one point, too. It's like, would it be like a fairground where people we charge $10 for people to try on the costume? Like, that's a joke. But just like, where could we take her? Where would it be interesting to have her be, you know? In a way, it feels more open-ended than some projects. I feel like kind of going to let this iteration rest a little bit, but it could spring five other pieces out of the same world and out of the same character. And that is quite new for me. So, so yeah, I think that's like not a question, but it's just like, wow, like world building as a practice. And maybe some other artists are listening to this and going like, that's what I always do. But for me, yeah, it feels exciting. It feels like very generative, very generative of ideas too. Exciting. All right. Well, stay tuned. We'll stay tuned. See where she shows up. I want to see all her outfits. And we were talking about, actually, she doesn't have a name yet. So maybe this is the next thing. We need to create a little naming competition. Let's go. All right. So if you have a name idea, if you saw the piece, you can text me. Well, no, you can't because I'm not (laughs) going to give you my phone number. You can message Emelina. She's on Instagram. I know that because that's how we started making this thing. You've already figured that out. Anyway, thank you so much. And we are very excited to hear about the rest. What's happening? We'll stay tuned. She'll be back. She'll be back. She'll be back. And that's it. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much, Emelina, for sitting down and sharing your thoughts and the reverberations post-show. Please get in touch. We are on Instagram, Tara Cheyenne TCP, Facebook, Tara Cheyenne Performance. Email's good too, info at tarashayan.com. Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne is a project of Tara Cheyenne Performance. We are produced, edited with original music by Mark Stewart. And you can get in touch with Mark at markstewartmusic.com. Please keep making shit up. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is effing good.